Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. My guest this episode is Parrish. He's on Twitter as pfunk1130, where he tweets about comics and whatever else strikes his fancy. He's an avid reader and comics fan, and we ended up having a spoiler-free discussion of Saga Volumes 1 through 3. Whenever I mention checking out comics, people who know I like science fiction and fantasy recommend that I check out Saga, and so I did, and we talked about it. We ended up talking a bit about the comic, what it was like for me to approach this visual medium after all my prose reading, representation within the comic, and the family that Saga revolves around. Parrish also had a few questions for me along the way. As usual, I started by asking Parrish about his experience with science fiction, fantasy, and comics. My uh, experience with science fiction, like most people, you know, started with, you know, Star Wars and Star Trek. And, you know, over my life, I've kind of bounced between which one I'm a bigger fan of. <laughs> um, and they're both very, very different. I think really when I've really settled down into science fiction it was probably around high school, even though I, I really enjoyed like the concepts, you know, space exploration, alien beings, you know, robots, all that kind of stuff. I really settled into reading science fiction um, once I read Word for the World is Forest by yeah. Ursula K. Le Guin. Le Guin is one of those authors that, that has just blown my mind continually over the years. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I had this realization, it really sounds kind of silly now, and people probably, a lot of people will probably find this to be a little silly, but I, I did not realize that science fiction could be more than a space opera. Or, okay. you know, I think this was right around the time next gener- the next generation was coming out. So, you know, I, I just had this very kind of narrow scope of what science fiction was. And I, and I just, you know, when high school came around, I just kept reading books that kept, like, expanding that. In terms of comic books, I started reading comic books probably as a preteen. I really settled into comic books right around the time I started high school. Again, I, it was one of those situations where I, I had, like, a very narrow kind of entry point into comic books. Um, my, my interest was mainly X-Men and, and the X-Books, which was going through a renaissance that, that kind of made them the biggest property in Marvel up until they started building into the Avengers things with the movies and all. Mm-hmm. I took some time away around the time I left high school to go to college. And then I had a lot of life happen and, and just kind of fell out. Not completely. I mean, if I kind of would hear someone that I knew say, hey, you should check this out. I'd, I'd go and get a trade here or there. I really got hardcore back into comics maybe about three or four years ago. Okay. It has been amazing. I think digital has changed a lot of things. I think comic books in general is just going through a huge renaissance. Really, there's too much to read now. (laughs) I'm feeling that way about science fiction and fantasy. So if I can ask you a question. Yeah. Fantasy has always been kind of touch and go for me. Mm -hmm. I was always the kid that looked up in the sky. I was Mm -hmm. always fascinated with space. So it makes sense. But I guess I'm wondering, what drew you to fantasy as opposed to science fiction? Well, there were more of those books on our shelves. I mean, we had The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. And I read those early. Okay. I get chills reading The Battle of the Pelennor Fields and Aragorn showing up at the last possible minute. And so kind of heroism and monsters. And that was... That was what I assumed the genre was. My intro to Le Guin was the Earthsea cycle. Okay. It was the battles. It was the notions of glory and heroism. 
And probably also the fact that the protagonist was usually this somewhat misunderstood kid who was a little bit bookish and came into a great deal of power. Gotcha. You know, I spent you know most of my childhood wanting to be a Jedi Knight. Mm-hmm. I mostly missed Star Wars. Like, I saw bits and pieces of it. I was kind of familiar with it by the time I went off to college, but it wouldn't surprise me if, like, junior high or high school was the first time I saw it. Now, I grew up on Star Trek. Mm. I'd watch the first 20 minutes of Deep Space Nine before going off to swim class oh, every God. week. Deep Space Nine. Oh. I am doing a Deep Space Nine rewatch with my uh, toddler right now. Yeah, when I have the time, I've been watching episodes here and there. I just, I love that show. It's great. It's, it's so, so good. wonderful. I love it. What strikes me about watching The Next Generation in Deep Space Nine again is it, I think it goes back to an age where we kind of let shows build. I think there are shows on TV that we, we let you know, be a slow burn and let build. Mm-hmm. In general, I don't know that we have the same patience that we used to. Now, granted, we have more options. Right. But, you know, if you look at the first couple of seasons of Deep Space Nine, it, it kind of meandered. Yeah, it really did. And then they said, oh, hey, we should probably bring in the Dominion. Right. But it took like three, three and a half seasons to get there. Yeah, I keep waiting for that to really show up. And I'm like halfway through season two, more than halfway. And it shows up, but it's not one of the, you know, it's not the driving force. Yeah. I love DS9. (laughs) So Saga. And, And for me, like I'm looking at Saga and part of me is just like, I don't have to try to figure out what the characters look like. (laughs) <laughs> the settings are not all featureless. There's actually, you know, background. Is Saga a big thing for you? Or was it just like, oh, yeah, if you're if you're into science fiction and want to check out comics, you should probably look at Saga and then we can talk about it. So I think there's a reason why, you know, you've heard multiple people tell you to read Saga. I mean, it, it's pretty universally considered to be the best comic book out today. Okay. The the writer Brian K. Vaughn is at this point a legend in the the field. Mm-hmm. During his career, he has done X Men, he's done Batman, he's done Green Lantern, he's worked for all four of the big four comic book companies. He's worked for Marvel, he's worked with DC, he's worked with Dark Horse, and he you know Saga is a creator owned title through Image. Mm-hmm. You know, I say all this to say when you see Brian K. Vaughn's name, you know, there's there's a certain expectation of quality right there. Mm -hmm. I got put on to Saga, you know, just by pretty much everyone's advice. And as much as I expected from Brian K. Vaughn, I mean, Saga really just blew everything away. Mm -hmm. So when you think about it, what are some of the things that really jump out at you as highlights of Saga or what kind of defines it for you or grabs you or seems really distinctive about it? It's very much a space opera. Yeah. Or in the way that I see space operas. And I love space operas. It has a fairy tale element to it, but it also kind of subverts a lot of tropes as you go along. Mm-hmm. The art stands out to me. The diversity of, of the cast does stand out to me a lot. You know, the opening was, was a woman of color with wings giving birth on page one. Coming into this, I, I was just more interested in how you approached the books as someone who did not read comics? Well, I tried to just read the words and then these, these pictures kept intruding themselves. <laughs> There's the, the end of, I think like the first chapter of volume two, when we meet Marco's ex and it's just, it's a full page of her standing there and she's a black woman standing proudly. Boom. She's standing there. She's holding her staff. She's got the sky and the sun behind her. And there are, so I said, 
when I'm reading fantasy, there are a couple of moments that just, like, they send chills down my spine, and they really stick with me. And honestly, one of them, um, and this isn't fantasy, it's science fiction, but Larry Niven's Ringworld, mm-hmm. he's got a really elegant way of sort of describing what the ring world is and giving you some way of trying to visualize it. Yes. As one of his characters wrestles with it. And it's, you know, the candle and the paper wrapping itself around the candle and things like that. So there are a few sort of moments of a fantasy series that really do stick in my head. The Battle of Pelennor Fields, Moiraine retelling the Battle of the Nethrin in, in Eye of the World. Like, there's some stuff that feels iconic to me. I kept trying to just read words in Saga, and I kept being interrupted by the art and by how striking it was and realizing that the impact of the page was the artwork on it. It wasn't the writing. It was seeing the big image, or it was just something that didn't work without without the art to show you what was going on and impress the scale or the grotesqueness or sometimes just the color palette to kind of set the set the mood and the stage. Looking back on it, there are plenty of moments that I just, I remember the visual for. I remember Lion Cat flying out of the airlock. I remember the first time that they met the ghost. So I think when you talk about the depictions of the bodies, one thing that I think independent comic or creator-owned comics do well is, you know, depicting different body types. So there's another book called Rat Queens mm-hmm. that is very, very good. Um, it's it's another one of my favorites, and it, it centers around a, a team. It's it's basically like a tabletop RPG in a comic book. So mm-hmm. you have this team, all women. They're archetypes from Dungeons and Dragons, basically. Um, but they all are radically different in their size and their shapes. And I see what you're saying about Saga as well. And I think you know when we talk about that, we touch on something that I think has not always been the standard for comics. Mm-hmm. So if you, you know, I, I think if you look at superhero comics, for instance, there's always been a huge discussion about the body types, particularly for the women. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you honed in on that because that's actually a thing in terms of the industry. Okay. And it's something that, that both books have done extraordinarily well, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with um, you honing in on, you know, a woman of color being prominent, you know, on the first page, giving birth also speaks to um, a lot of conversations that are going on within the comic fandom and within the industry Mm -hmm. in terms of representation of people of color, representation of women. And I I don't think there's any way to argue it. I think that a lot of the creator owned and independent titles are ahead of the curve on that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's a good thing for multiple reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, Science fiction fantasy is going through, like, the prose and novel side of things is going through many of the same discussions. And uh, I left the genre for a while. Like, my plan was just, okay, I've got a really nice library. I'll keep reading it because whenever I try something new, it's more of the same. Mm -hmm. Um, And then back-to-back in close succession, I read Saladin Ahmed's Throne of the Crescent Moon and Jemison's Hundred Thousand Kingdoms. And I don't think it was just that there was a fat old Arab guy in one of them and a woman of color who becomes a goddess in the other one. But at the same time, the worlds that they were imagining were new and original. And I have to think that some of some of what made those books say to me, yes, there's more out there and there's more that I haven't read and seen before. 
the level of imagination and world building, the traditions they were drawing on and the kinds of worlds they were creating were worlds that could center a fat old Arab guy and a woman who becomes a goddess. And, you know, all of a sudden I was like, yes, I'm back in and I want to read new stuff. I mean, it seems like there's a renaissance going on in multiple areas of quote unquote nerd Mm -hmm. media. Yeah. And I think a lot of it is driven by women and people of color and people with disabilities LGBTQ creators, I think we all want to be seen, we all want to be heard. And I think what people don't also take into consideration is that when we are seen and we are heard, the story changes. And I think we're starting to see that everywhere now. Yeah. Something else, and I don't know that this is directly connected, but but thinking about the story changes. Saga has a large extended family who's in love with each other. Like, there's the baby, there are the two parents, the grandparents show up, and the grandparents in general get along well, and they don't necessarily approve that their son has run off and married the enemy and had a child, but they're like, okay, we're family, this is, we're all doing this together. And I really enjoy that aspect of the story. I also really enjoy that. I think also, if we are to believe Hazel as the narrator, and I want to, you know, kind of hold my judgment on that. Mm Mm-hmm as the story develops. Uh-oh. Well, because she even mentions that the haze of her childhood may be yeah. changing the story a little bit. Mm-hmm. But I, I think in addition to the family element, what also intrigues me is that the story is told from people who are, aside from the fact that they had this child, you know, pretty insignificant. And even with the child, they're still pretty insignificant. Right. They are much more important as symbols than for who they are. Yeah, we, we don't expect Hazel to be the chosen one, so to speak, and to end the war, or at least I don't have that right. feel. Yeah. Certainly the narration, you know, she even kind of touches on this. You know, the the characters are, are not really special. They're just trying to make their way through mm-hmm. a terrible circumstance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really like that aspect of things. And that it's nothing in particular hangs in the balance except for the characters who we've come to love and care about. I haven't really seen this where I am, but it sounds like later the robot prince becomes a sort of sympathetic figure. Yes, I did read a little bit further on. Mm-hmm. Prince Robot the Fourth, I think, does become a, a, a more sympathetic. I mean, he has PTSD. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I kind of caught on to his character probably a little early on. Again, he's kind of subject to the circumstances. And I think that most of the characters are in the book. I don't think there's a strict morality there. No, I, I definitely agree. Somewhere early on, I said something like, well, that was unexpected. And someone said, you will continue having that reaction to Saga forever and ever. Yes. And it's definitely the case that whenever I get comfortable in thinking, I know what's happening, or I know which characters are important and what sides they're on and what the motivations are on, something really shocking happens. And sometimes that's on the level of something new revealed about characters. Sometimes it's on the level of a sacrifice that they're asked to make or someone who I thought was going to be important ending up dead or the sort of monster they're meeting. I remember there's the planet that's actually an egg hatching. Yeah, that that was crazy. And they all have to figure out how to escape that. And again, that one, like, coming from prose... (laughs) seeing a planet exploding because it's an egg hatching and like seeing them 
in their little tiny ship trying to escape that and getting a sense of scale. I feel like that's something that the comic medium can do. Yeah, I think the only other place you'll get that from is, you know, the big budget movie. Right. But I also think that the thing that draws you into comics, the thing that it does that that the big budget movie doesn't do is I think you develop a relationship with comic books that Mm -hmm. I don't think you develop with a movie. You know, I'm all in for Saga. Right. I'm all in for Rat Queens. You know, I'm all in for Miss Marvel. You're not all in for Marvel Cinematic Universe schedule out into what is it 2020 or however far out it is so i am i am a huge fan of the mcu that said now that i'm getting back into the comic books i I still think that there's a relationship there that isn't there with the movies now we take a closer look at some of the visual elements that separate comics from prose and wrap up by returning to the family at the heart of Sokka. I just read Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics, which I feel like I could probably read 17 more times and get something new out of each time. I felt like the big things I got out of this one were just how much art style can impact the way that you, the reader, are are sort of putting yourself into the story and constructing the story around the panels. Yes. Because he also talks a lot about, like, sequences and that in between panels, you're kind of filling in bits and pieces. Yep. And creating the world between and around the panels well it's just like when you read a book the way that the chaptering works so you know you're laying the panels out on the page for instance like one of the full page images that really stood out for me was seeing the stalk Mm -hmm. and if you look at the page before the panels are laid out so the last panel you see is marco looking up and then you turn the page and you see the stalk right you know, like I said, it's very it's it's very similar to the way that books are chaptered, where, you know, you get to the end of, you know, chapter 22 and it kind of leaves you hanging and then you see chapter 23 and it, it, it picks up. Yeah. Something that I, I don't think I noticed at all when I was reading it, but that as I'm flipping through now, I'm really picking up on is that the background matters, like especially in the first volume. So when we're sort of meeting all the characters and settings. When we meet Alana and Marco in that whole first sequence, there's just a lot of orange and yellow and brown, and the color palette is very defined. And then flipping through, we next meet the prince, and he's very pale. Mm -hmm. And then the will is reds and blues, but mostly blues. And I feel like that's a little bit less true in some of the later volumes, but especially the first volume, so the first, what, five to six issues? Yeah, the... Yeah, the palette is yeah, very pronounced. Yeah, the color pronounced. palette and the, yeah. and the background palette is very pronounced and does a lot to set where you are and who is the protagonist and so what is going on, which again, I, I didn't even pick up on at all until just kind of flipping through it and just getting impressions of color. Yeah, so I mean, colorists, I think, um, often get uh, overlooked in comic books. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, when you say artist, you unless the artist does the pencil and the color, oftentimes you're talking about the penciler. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure you've heard the title, The Wicked and the Divine. I've not more than heard of it, but yeah. So um, if you ever get a chance to check out that book, that is a prime example of how the colors can tell a story of its own. Okay. There are some issues in The Wicked and Divine where the color is so brilliant that, you know, I literally had to pause and just look at how the coloring was done Mm -hmm. 
And so, yeah, I think you 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 sound a lot like a comic book reader. <laughs> I, this is. I read one issue of Miss Marvel and Saga, and that's about it. I'm trying to understand it. It's very interesting to see you kind of pick up on those elements because, again, like I said, a lot of those things I've, I've really kind of taken for granted. And so I pick up on them when I see extraordinary things happen. Mm-hmm. But because you're, you're new to it, you have this whole process where you're analyzing everything. Right. And, yeah, I, I just find that really fascinating. It's an interesting process. And it's, it's something that in some ways I kind of wish I could do with science fiction and fantasy prose. But it's harder for me to detach when I'm reading those and say what's going on and kind of be be sort of critical and analytical about it. Whereas with comics, I'm like, I have no idea what's going on here. What are all of these reactions I'm having? <laughs> Other things that we should talk about? Anything else that's that's really interesting about what's going on in Saga? Maybe what's going on with the story? I mean, I think the thing for me about the story, it's a lot more episodic than most prose novels like it's you know this little thing happens and then this little thing happens and they're they're connected and and i see what you're saying about story arcs but there's much i feel like less of kind of a through line characters build to a climax and then have a little denouement than there is with prose so i think what you're seeing here is because the story hasn't quite wrapped up you don't get a chance to kind of look at it as a whole and see you know where the through lines are Mm-hmm. And there are some writers that are very, very good at that with, you know, they kind of take you through the motions of these different stories that all have their own sense of reward. And then when you you look back after everything is done, you know, there are moments where you're like, OK, I got to reread this again to figure out how these mini stories kind of connected into this larger arc. Mm-hmm. I think for me and, and I'm sure for a lot of people, Jonathan Hickman is one of those writers where you can read probably three quarters of a book that he's done and Mm -hmm. it won't connect for you until you get to the last quarter. (laughs) He's the guy that's currently um, the the mastermind behind Marvel's big event that's been going on. Okay. Secret Wars. Yeah. He's a phenomenal writer. There are a number of different books where you kind of read it and you go, I don't know what's going on, but it's amazing. And then you get to maybe issue 2025 and you go, okay, this is starting to make sense now. Mm-hmm. This is amazing. As far as Saga, so, you know, I, the, the, the thing that I'm kind of, I guess what I really want is for it to kind of hurry up because I want to see how the child becomes the child. Right. And I think they've done an extraordinary job up to this point of giving us the story, but it, all it does is make you want more and more to figure out, well, what happened? We know that the child, you know, grows older how old, we don't know. Right, but we know that she gets the chance to grow up. Right. Well, and going back for a second to the episodic nature, there were a lot of books written that started out as a series of short stories and novellas in science fiction magazines in, I think, like the 50s and 60s, and then all got stitched together into a novel. And you can kind of see, okay, these were individual storylines about connected characters. And the comics kind of feel like some of those. Yeah, it's serialized storytelling. Yeah, yeah definitely. Which is something I'm not used to, going back to what is it about comics? I feel like we should have talked more about the story itself. Were there any other, you know, particular story elements that you you found fascinating? I mean, not really. I find the characters interesting, and I'm still sort of captivated by the art, but there were lots of things about the plot that sort of surprised me and events that that were really interesting, but nothing that seemed really 
important or critical. I think that that's the charm of the book. The fact that the parents, they're really dumb kids and Mm -hmm. they, They've gotten this far based on sheer luck. I think that's part of the charm of the story. Right, right. Realistically speaking, like, they should have been dead a long time ago. Yeah. Their survival skills are pretty low. Yes. Go on, but then I will jump off of that. Yeah, I mean, they, they've both been soldiers, so obviously they've been trained to handle themselves in a battle. But they're both missing a ton in terms of life skills. Like, they are yeah. the least capable of raising a child they're they're probably the farthest from the the group of people like if you if you had a circle of friends and they were a part of your circle of friends those are the two that you do not want to have a kid right and that was another thing where like getting back to saga continually disrupting expectations like i just kind of assumed they've both been soldiers they're clearly in love with each other they're the protagonists i assumed more competence than they demonstrate but I think, again, I think that's part of the charm of the book. It really because is. I think, it really I, is. I guess maybe this is a another moment where me, having read so many comic books up to this point, you know, I have a I have a frame of reference on this. Because, you know, typically comic books, even if they're not your superhero comic, where you know that the character is going to do these crazy, awe-inspiring feats and save the universe or the world or whatever he, gu- he or she guards, mm-hmm. even in non-superhero comics a lot of times you have this expectation that the protagonist is the one who's going to save the day and i think that the fact that the the parents are probably the least competent characters but the the, the story is clearly centered around them i think that in itself kind of subverts the, the medium yeah that's one of the reasons that going back to just the family and the fact that we have this family that isn't always totally functional but always kind of supports each other like they sort of need to There is not a whole lot of room here for drama. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book. The right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. Yeah, I definitely think I'd have to say the the parable books by Octavia Butler. I think those books, they explain why I'm so tired of dystopia. Mm -hmm. Because... The characters in in the parable books, you know, have to deal with an apocalyptic situation. But the whole point of their commune is that they believe that we can reach the stars. Okay. Um, And I think that that, you know, that that had an impact on me because I think science fiction is really supposed to be about, you know, us, however we manage to do it by the skin of our teeth, you know, getting to the future. Like, there is such thing as a better world than the one that we live in. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, I, I really, those books really kind of, kind of spoke to me when I read them. I have a huge grin on my face, and I am rethinking my thoughts and impressions of the parable books, because I think that's wonderful and much more hopeful than what I took out of them. You know, that was a huge element. I mean, even at the end of the, of the parable of the talents, if I recall correctly, they do actually leave the planet. Yeah. Yeah, they do. I read them last year, I think. So in the middle of being on Twitter and being, becoming much more aware of, of living in an oppressive state. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like when I read the books, yeah, there's a lot of really kind of sign of the times things you can pull out of the book that really, quite frankly, scare the crap out of you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, the, I think 
what struck me was that the protagonists believed that, you know, we could make it to the stars. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at J. Sutton Morse. The show is on Twitter at KingCabbageCast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.